Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Many Americans were taught that the U.S. mainland was not attacked during World War II. It was. It basically, it was attacked during World War II. Between 1944 and 1945, the Japanese launched more than 9,000 bomb-rigged balloons across the Pacific, resulting in tragic deaths of six people that we know of in a place called Bly, Oregon. The bombs were called Fugo bombs, and basically they were rigged in such a way that they could travel across the, the stream, the I would say Gulf Stream, the stream from between Japan and the United States. That's how they got here. There's a lot in this documentary film called The Great Balloon Bomb Invasion, and it is currently running on Discovery+. Plus. And you will want to check this out because I guarantee you, even if you kind of know anything about this, there's a lot more to this story than you already know. And if you don't, you'll be shocked and amazed by it the great balloon bomb invasion. We're joined today by the executive producer of the film, and that would be Stuart Chait. Stuart, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. Was that a reasonable ex- explanation, a reasonable introduction of what we, we see in the film? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's one of those kind of World War II stories that uh, maybe you've heard a little bit about or it's it's a it's a little curiosity or you haven't heard anything about in the in the course of making this documentary uh, i think i discovered that most people outside of the pacific northwest have never heard of this story before uh or if they if they have it usually gets passed down from a, an older relative who, who may have heard or known something about that but it's it's treated like a little curiosity of history but it's it's one of those stories that i think really should be better known because as you as you let in in your intro it's um everyone thinks that pearl harbor is about as close as it came to attacking the united states and more than nine thousand balloons came over the jet stream on the pacific ocean and the japanese were were trying to hit the american mainland it is an amazing story just as you described the nine thousand bombs now we're not quite exactly sure how many of them reached the united states but they estimate about 10% 10% of them reach the mainland. That's Correct. a lot of bombs. Um, <laughs> That's it is, it. yeah. So the, the War Department at the time estimated that about 10% of those 9,000 bombs would make the, would survive the journey across the Pacific and the jet stream. And so that puts it, you know, roughly conservatively around 900. And what makes this kind of a modern story and not just an interesting story from the past is that only around... 350 or so have ever been kind of accounted for, cited or found remnants of. So if you go with that conservative estimate of 900 and then know that only 350, that puts more than 500 unaccounted for uh, that could still be out there on uh, North American soil. And I think one of the most interesting things to me that I found when we were doing this is that as recently as 2014 and 2019, two separate incidents in British Columbia, These there were findings of intact Fugo balloon bombs in the wilderness in British Columbia. Um, two forestry workers found uh, a bomb in 2014, and then uh, a hiker, uh, uh, kind of a hunter looking for mountain goats in 2019 also found 
a balloon bomb, just kind of on a hillside, didn't even know what it was. And that's kind of what makes this uh, not just a, an interesting historical story, but a modern one as well, because I think you, uh, I think a lot of people have heard stories of ordnance being found in Germany or in the Pacific theater. You know, you, there's places where you go where there's signs like beware of live ordnance or, you know, be careful. And that's actually something that we should probably have a little bit more awareness of in North America because of this balloon bomb program. Absolutely right. What you said is I, I think I remember as I think back on my life, I lived in the Sierra Nevadas for a long time then, which is the Eastern mountain range um, in California, uh, butts right up against Nevada. And as I'm watching this movie, I'm thinking to myself, well, I mean, it would seem that those bombs would have ended up in mountaintops somewhere along the way. Mm-hmm. And so it gives you pause. I think anybody who's kind of ever been on the West Coast, spends time living on the West Coast, has to think maybe there, there, this could be something that, uh, that would have crossed uh, my life and, not, and I would have not known about it. So then that's the beauty of the film, by the way. I want to let people know a uh, great balloon bomb invasion is that we follow uh, our, our guide, Martin Morgan, as he tries to unravel this story. As he begins to not only just in telling the story, but also, what other ways does he does he become uh, an important part of the story? Well, I think it's about trying to understand how these uh, balloon bombs work and the danger that they can still pose today. And so there's a lot of different aspects that we cover besides the history, which is fascinating in and of itself. But he has a team of people that he, he works with to try and see if we can find one of these balloon bombs that have never been found. And, you know, we have a lot of technology at our disposable that was not around in the 40s. Uh, and so we're using drones and magnetometers and we, we use meteorologists analyzing historical wind patterns. And so the goal is to see if you can kind of take all of that information and figure out where these might still be today. Some of those 500 plus unaccounted for out in the wilderness. And so some of the things that we do involve a lot of you know, technology use in the field, as well as some kind of experiments or demonstrations, understanding how that apparatus would have worked, how the balloon managed to get across the Pacific Ocean. Because I think the first question I had when I first heard this story was, how does a balloon, I understand how the jet stream works, you know, river of air moving fast across the Pacific, but how does it stay there? How does it not drift too high or drift Below And the balloon had kind of this ingenious mechanism that knew what its altitude was. It had an altimeter in it, and it would drop sandbag ballast based on where it was. So as it started to kind of rise too high in the, uh, in the atmosphere, it had a little gas relief valve that would let some of the hydrogen gas inside out of it to bring it back down. And if it started to drift too low and become too heavy, it would drop a sandbag and pop right back up so that it was always staying in that one little current of air to keep it going across the ocean. So we have a little demonstration about how that would work. And then I think one of the other things that's important is understanding that the, the bomb itself is really, really dangerous today. And we, we, we try and show that in a couple of different ways in that the bomb, the explosive material within these bombs uh, was picric acid. And picric acid can be highly unstable 75 plus years later to the point where if the casing in the bombshell has ruptured or, or something like that, some of that material could leak out. 
And you don't even necessarily have to touch one of these bombs for it to explode. You could walk near it. You could disturb some of the kind of salt crystals that form as a result of time and age when it comes to this uh, to this bomb. And it, it makes things, if you're not aware of what you're looking at or what you're approaching, it, it could be dangerous. So we try and lay out all of those different aspects so that people get a full perspective on these bombs. On our minor listeners, we're speaking with the executive producer of the film Balloon Bomb Invasion, and it is currently running on Discovery+. Plus. You should really be looking for this. It's I say it's fun, and, I, and maybe that's probably not the right word, but I mean, it's it's a discovery, how appropriate, about, about, the, uh, about this part of World War II. I do want to get a little bit into the the way that these things were made, where they were made, you know, and 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 then our reaction, the U.S. military's reaction to knowing what they were, and how it was handling that during during the course of during the course of World War II. There's that's because it's a really fascinating part of all of this. They're called Fugo bombs. Let's talk about how they were made because that's a fascinating part of the story. Yeah, we also drill down into the kind of more personal aspects because these balloons. You're, you're talking about a like a, a 32 foot diameter balloon that was filled with hydrogen gas, and the way that the the Japanese made them is they actually enlisted uh, school children, like schoolgirls, to make these balloons instead of going to school. Like they would take over schools and make them into factories, essentially. And there's a section of the film where we were lucky enough to make a connection with Alana Soul, who is another documentary filmmaker who did a documentary called On Paper Wings. And she had kind of created an amazing documentary documenting the experience of the Japanese women uh, who discovered what happened in Bly, Oregon, which is the event in North America where one of these balloon bombs claimed um, the life of a pregnant, pregnant woman and five children. She tells the story of this reconciliation between the the Japanese, this group of Japanese women who discovered this and families and descendants and the locals in this town of Bly, Oregon. And she does an amazing job kind of connecting on a personal level with everybody involved in this. And part of that story is these women who as young girls didn't recognize kind of the work that they were doing and the impact that it would have. And so we were lucky enough to be able to work with her and see some of her documentary as well as get an interview with her to hear about her experience. Well, I mean, it's a war. You use whatever you need to in order to try and uh, be successful. And the Japanese certainly did that. Uh, and But these young women had no idea exactly what they were doing. They were making the balloon part of the enterprise. Correct. And it is a pretty remarkable bit of engineering, the way the bomb works, the way it was, as you earlier described it. But then there was this other part of it, which was that after this incident in Bly, or during this period of time when people were, there were reports coming out about bombs in, this is during World War II. And uh, it was one of those things where people made a logical jump, I think, to say these were probably coming from the Japanese, but they weren't sure. What was the U.S. military reaction to all of this? So the the reaction of the military and the government at the time was to institute a censorship campaign. And this is one of the reasons why this is not a well-known story, even all these years later, because essentially the, the U.S. government didn't want the Japanese to get information about how successful their balloons were in crossing the ocean. You know, they the Japanese would have been on the lookout for newspaper reports or media 
anything like that. And so by putting a censorship campaign, by putting the lid on any of these stories, that information wouldn't get out. And then in addition to that, the other goal is to not create a, a, a sense of panic in the American people at the time, because when we're dealing with the aftermath of a couple of years after Pearl Harbor and the war in Europe coming to an end, the last thing you want is for the American people to have their morale shaken or think that these weapons can come over and cause chaos, um, which is exactly what the Japanese goal at the time was. Their, their, their primary goal is to actually start forest fires, and especially in the Pacific Northwest, which is where the, the main corridor of these balloon bomb landings would be. And so that was meant to create a sense of panic. It was meant to divert resources from the war effort to have to fight fires and defend against these things at home. So the government did not want any information coming out at the time period about these bombs. And as a result, that's what leads to the tragic uh, event in a lot of people's mind in Bly, Oregon on May 5th, 1945, which is a minister and his pregnant wife and a group of five Sunday school children go up on a picnic on a, up on a mountain on Gearhart Mountain, just outside of this small town of Bly, Oregon, just going on a, a picnic, maybe fishing in a stream. They have no idea what this device that they encounter is and the reverend is at the car uh, or near the car when the device is uh, discovered and as a result they don't know they start no no one will ever know exactly what happened in that moment but picked it up touched something something set it off and as a result five children and his pregnant wife were tragically killed and those are the only place on the american continent where death resulted from enemy action during world war ii it's just a fascinating documentary. There's another section of the film about an African-American unit involved in this. We'll leave this for the viewers to, to check out because there is a lot here. So again, the film is called Great Balloon Bomb Invasion. It is currently running on Discovery Plus, and you want to check this out. And thank you uh, for being here, Stuart Chait, uh, the executive producer of the film, and um Thank you for bringing it to our attention. And I hope, I'm sure you're getting a lot of reaction as you described at the beginning of our, our interview about people who are coming up to you, I'm sure, and saying, I had no idea. I had no Absolutely. idea this happened. And you will continue, I'm sure, for the rest of your life, having <laughs> people tell you that this is one of those stories, that, uh, that it's uh, fascinating and well-told. Thank you to Martin Morgan, as well as Ed Fritz and uh, Ronaldo Evans as our guides throughout this film. And thank you to you. Thank you for having me. And I'm glad you enjoyed the film. And I hope a lot of other people uh, learn some of the amazing history uh, surrounding this story and all the different kind of little pockets of information uh, and stories of people that were involved in it. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Film School Radio.